0: Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. 80 years on from Trotsky's assassination, can they kill his ideas? Lev Davidovich Bronstein, better known as Leon Trotsky, was killed on 21st of August 1940. What was Stalin afraid of? And why do the capitalist commentators still try to bury Trotsky's ideas today? This month, Socialism the Podcast will be answering those questions in a series on Trotsky and Trotskyism. What was his role in Russia's revolutions? What is the theory of permanent revolution? How did Stalinism betray it? What is a transitional programme? And what can workers and socialists today learn from it all? We begin our series with a general introduction. In the months before his death, Trotsky wrote... If I had to begin all over again, I would of course try to avoid this or that mistake, but the main cause of my life would remain unchanged. My faith in the communist future of mankind is not less ardent, indeed it is firmer today than it was in the days of my youth. Life is beautiful. Let the future generations cleanse it of all evil, oppression and violence, and enjoy it to the full. This episode of Socialism looks at Leon Trotsky, an introduction to his revolutionary life and ideas.
1: We're here this episode with Tony Sonwa, who's the Secretary of the Committee for a Workers' International. That's the World Socialist Organisation which the Socialist Party in England and Wales is affiliated to. Hello, Tony. Hello, James. Now, 80 years ago this month in August 1940, Leon Trotsky was murdered in exile in Mexico by a Stalinist infiltrator armed with an ice pick. Before that time, and since that time, the capitalists and their shadows in the workers' movement have done their utmost to smear the man and discredit his ideas. Now, it seems incredible that a boy born in 1879 to illiterate Jewish farmers in what is now Ukraine could come to attract such hatred from the global powerful. So why should socialists and workers in the 21st century pay attention to that? Well, I think it's important,
2: James, that we look at that because there's an ongoing and recurring attack launched against Trotsky by historians, by capitalist commentators in general. And it is incredible the degree of bile and hatred that they have tried to poor over the legacy of Trotsky and of course it's partly because of his role and the issue is fundamentally that they are absolutely terrified of the ideas that he defended and the contribution he made to carrying out those ideas because here you were dealing with a revolutionary giant in terms of what he did practically he was not an academic in the sense of just being detached from the mass of the workers movement itself He developed brilliant theoretical ideas and applied them in practice and led or played a crucial role in leading the Russian Revolution and in particular after its Stalinist degeneration. He was the pioneer, he was the main fighter against the Stalinist repression which took place and it's the fear of what his ideas represent and the impact and their importance today which is the reason we see this recurring campaign to try and denigrate Trotsky. And for us, of course, the key thing is, is to take from it today the relevance of his ideas, to be inspired by the incredible life that he led and the contribution he made to the revolutionary movement, the taking of power by the Russian working class and the incredible struggle that he conducted against that bureaucratic Bonaparte-Stalinist dictatorship.
1: The CWI is holding an international online rally for the 80th anniversary of Trotsky's assassination, entitled, Why Couldn't His Ideas Be Killed? That's on Sunday the 23rd of August from 2pm London time, and you can register to attend at socialistworld.net Now, like a lot of people, like everyone really, Trotsky, in his early life, went through a range of different ideas as he was trying to test out his politics and figure out what the way forward for society was. But ultimately, he fell in with revolutionary circles and ended up exiled to Siberia by the Tsarist police state, I suppose you could call it, the dictatorship at that time, a feudal monarchy, and escaped, ultimately, his first exile in Siberia and became involved with Vladimir Lenin, and the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. But Trotsky and Lenin then fell out in the Bolshevik-Menshevik split in 1903. So what happened? Well, that's an interesting
2: point, because there's different angles to that, James. Firstly, the importance of the split that took place in 1903 between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks is of crucial importance in and of itself. But the fact that you had this falling out or disagreement between Lenin and Trotsky... On that issue, and later on some other issues as well, it refutes this idea which is put around that the whole of Bolshevism was simply Lenin's dictatorship in which there was no debate, no discussion, no dissent took place. And that is completely refuted if you look at the whole history of the Bolshevik Party and indeed the relations between Lenin and Trotsky themselves. Mm. Now, in 1903, though, it was a crucial question because you had the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, which was the umbrella Marxist organisation of revolutionaries in Russia. At that time, it was largely driven into exile, of course, because of the czarist regimes. And by 1903, you had two wings develop within it, one which crystallised around the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, and one which crystallised around the Mensheviks, who included many individuals. You had Plekhanov on one side, you had Martov on the other, on the left, all of whom had played different roles and had made contributions. But there was a fundamental difference eventually to emerge, but in 1903 it was a split over what appeared to be a relatively secondary question, an organisational question, of the character of the membership of the party. And it came down to a dispute between hards and softs, And really that was an anticipation of what was to develop later into a much more fundamental difference over the character of the revolution in Russia, the character of the Revolutionary Party itself, which maybe we can come on to discuss a little bit later. But that dispute took place. Now Trotsky at that time didn't fully grasp the significance of the split that took place in the 1903 Congress, which eventually was compelled to move to London and met there. And he didn't really see that. And he held out the hope for a whole period after that that it would be possible to overcome that division. And what he really looked towards was that under the impact of events, particularly the wing of the Mensheviks around Martov and some of the others, he hoped that under the impact of events that they would be forced back towards the left. And he tried in that sense to facilitate a reconciliation between the two wings of the party. Now, Lenin had grasped the issues much clearer and saw behind this organisational question more important political differences which were to emerge. Now, Trotsky later came to the same conclusion some years later under the hammer blows of the revolution itself and ended up joining the Bolsheviks. And, of course, at the time he did that, he fully recognised the bad role that he had played at different stages trying to facilitate the reunification of the party and recognised the mistake. And he makes a very important point in his autobiography, My Life, where he recognised the mistakes and he made a point that once he became convinced of the issues, he came to Lenin on a much more principled and solid basis than others who at the time had simply repeated by rote some of Lenin's formulations, and some of Lenin's arguments but hadn't really grasped the points. And that was reflected later after Lenin's death when those individuals abandoned much of the ideas that were defended by Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So 1903 was a very significant point in the history of the movement. And it has echoes today. Some of the disputes that we've had in the CWI and in other organisations was developed have also represented elements of this trend as between those who want to go for a more compromised position and those who want to maintain a more principled, harder position of defending a more principled Marxist form of organisation and Marxist programme and
1: policy. Now, not long after this split, where Trotsky was in effect in the middle for a whole number of years, revolution broke out in Russia. First time was in 1905. Now, the young working class of St. Petersburg, which was the main administrative and industrial centre of Russia at that time, established a new form of organisation, the so-called Soviet, which, of course, is the Russian word simply for council. What was Trotsky's role? in the Petersburg Soviets, and are Soviets a model for today? Well, I think that's a very
2: important question, James, particularly the second part of the question. Trotsky, despite the fact, after 1903, I mean, really, he wasn't with the Mensheviks, he wasn't with the Bolsheviks, he was, you know, straddling a position in between the two, Mm. in reality, although politically, always really tended to endorse the position adopted by Lenin on most of the fundamental questions. But by 1905, nevertheless, despite that fact, Trotsky had accumulated... A lot of authority reflecting his activity in the underground, which was there, reflecting what he contributed politically. And that was reflected in the 1905 revolution. And with the formation of the Soviets in 1905, the first time it was formed, Trotsky was elected president of the Petrograd Soviet, which was an organisation of the Petrograd working class, which is a very revolutionary section of the working class. And it reflected the authority that Trotsky had built up. Now, significantly, there's a false perception sometimes given that everything in the Bolsheviks was predetermined and pre-decided and they always just had a correct position. And that was reflected in the attitude towards the Soviets because the Soviet in 1905 was a new organisation. It had not been seen prior to that. Could you describe it a little, perhaps? Well, it was was a Soviet, as you correctly said, the term a council. It was delegates elected from the factories. Subjects were immediate recall. They came together and formed the council. Later on, as Soviets were formed, beyond one or two of the factories, they linked up on a citywide basis. All of the delegates were elected, subject to recall. It became a genuine organ of struggle of the working class, and it was a parliament of the working class, where all of the political issues were thrashed out and debated, and it was a struggle between the different parties and tendencies which existed within the workers' movement itself. And Trotsky had this enormous authority, but as a new organisation... The importance of this development was not readily understood. Apart from Lenin, most of the leaders of the Bolshevik Party who were present at the time of the formation of the Soviet didn't regard it as important. And they actually saw it as a threat to the party Mm. itself. And it took Lenin's arrival to correct that sectarian approach that was adopted by the Bolsheviks. Now, Trotsky immediately had understood and appreciated the crucial significance that the Soviet represented. Now... What is the relevance for this today? And I think that's a crucial question, because if we look at the movements we've seen in Chile in the recent period, we look at the movements we've seen in a whole series of countries in Ecuador, of what we saw broken in Lebanon, of what we see the other movements taking place, the crucial question is that of organization, the absence today of organization of workers in struggle. Now, the trade unions are of fundamental importance The organised working class is decisive, and that was always recognised by Trotsky, by Lenin, and by revolutionary socialists. But that does not preclude other organs of struggle being thrown up and developed. Now, that is a crucial question, because if we look at what has taken place historically, we've seen the absence of any type of Soviet organisation was one of the major weaknesses in many revolutions. The absence of them in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s it was a big weakness, which Trotsky advocated the formation of workers' committees there. Their absence in the Chinese Revolution in twenty-seven was also a crucial weakness of them. And therefore, you can see, because it's a question of these organisations, which are immediately responsive to the changing moods and demands of the situation, where delegates are elected subject to immediate recall. They have to give an account to the workers in the factories of their role. So they're crucial, and they emerge then as the basis for the new workers' Government Now, is that form of organisation still relevant today? Well, I think, in essence, it is. It is. Whether it would take exactly the same form as it did in revolutionary Russia, I think we have to be a little bit more cautious about, particularly from the point of view of the change of the composition of the working class in some countries where you see a decline of the industrial base, the concentration of workers into big workplaces is less pronounced today with the deindustrialization which has occurred in many countries. But of course they're still there and you could imagine some type of Soviet of type of organization emerging among some layers of workers, but other forms of organization amongst the precarious workers would need to be thrown up and established during the course of those workers moving into a struggle, and it would, in their essence, be a Soviet type of organisation, whether it be exactly the same, we have to be, I think, a little bit open to. And it's crucial in many countries at this stage. I mean, the organisation of workers at the workplace is the decisive feature for the movement. But it's also important in areas where you have crisis of capitalism, mass unemployment, You have a social disintegration take place. You see the importance of the social movements, for example, in Latin America, India, and other countries, based in the neighbourhoods, based around housing issues. They are also of crucial importance. And for us, it's a question of integrating the two together. Obviously, the work in the trade unions with any new organisations of struggle, committees of action, which workers may throw up during the course of struggle. But linking those together with movements and forms of organisation in the communities today is more important than possibly has been
1: in any other point. So you also mentioned some of the historical examples there, the Spanish Revolution and China. And of course, in Spain, there were committees of a sort, weren't there, but they were... Put together at the top they were in effect the coming together of the bureaucracies of the trade unions and some of the political parties whereas in China there was just no organ of any organized worker struggle at all so the key element in whatever is thrown up today is that the actual ranks of the working class have a way to discuss and decide policy democratically is that fair to say? Yes that'll be accurate if you take for example the Spanish Civil War what you did
2: have on committees and uh, different councils, but they were fundamentally the local leaderships of different political parties the boom, socialist party, communist party, sometimes, and the trade unions. Mm. But it was the leadership of the parties. It was not the same position as the Soviets, where you'd have mass meetings of the workers in the factories. Delegates were given account a report. The delegates were elected subject to immediate recall, and they provided a check. You know. And in that sense, the Soviet form of organisation represented also the decisive changes which were taking place in the attitude and outlook of the working class, because at the beginning of the revolution... 1917 the bolsheviks were not in the majority they were in a small minority in the soviet organisations which were built and were thrown up and that changed later reflecting the changing political situation the experience of the working class And the fact that the programme of the Bolsheviks that was advocated by Lenin was the programme that workers understood to take the revolution forward. The absence of those organisations elsewhere was a fundamental weakness, which did partly result in holding back the revolution at a certain stage in those countries. And as you say, in China there was nothing there, and you had the criminal policy of Stalin of insisting the Chinese Communist Party dissolve its forces fundamentally into a bourgeois nationalist formation of Kuomintang.
1: So Trotsky in 1905 understood immediately the importance of the Soviet form of workers' organisation and came to lead the St Petersburg Soviet, of course St Petersburg later renamed Petrograd in 1914, I think, but the 1905 revolution was defeated. Trotsky was arrested, he was sent into exile again, and while in exile, he analysed the 1905 revolution and its aftermath and he established the theory now known as the Permanent Revolution. What was the significance of the Permanent Revolution then and now? Well, then it was a decisive turning point because it dealt
2: with the whole issue of the character of the Russian Revolution. And that was crucial, not just for Russia, but really particularly for an understanding of the processes and the revolution in the neo-colonial world of today, of Asia-Africa and of Latin America. Because the essence of what Trotsky put forward is if you look at how society has developed, capitalist society, you've had different phases of revolution, you've had different stages of of society, you had, you know, capitalism has not always been in existence, you have feudalism preceding it, etc. And you had bourgeois democratic revolutions, capitalist revolutions, if you like, which were necessary in order to take society forward at that stage to break it out from the constraints of feudalism. And what is post in the theory of the permanent revolution, is the fact that in the modern era, and it's applied in 1917 and it applied today, you have some capitalist countries where they've not had a full capitalist development the colonial countries, and they tend to be dominated entirely by the major imperialist powers. Now, that has crucial implications because what it means is where you have a weak capitalist class in those countries, or relatively weak, and in those societies... They're very contradictory. You have elements of capitalism, which can be very strong elements of capitalism, existing side by side with feudalism, landlordism. Often, the capitalist classes in those countries are linked to the land still. They're completely interwoven and linked with the question of global imperialism as well. And so, that's it, the larger capitalist powers around the world. Yes, yes, acting as kind of loan sharks, if you like. Yes, yes, and they'd be linked to, through loans, investments, etc. They'd be there now. In these countries, what it means is the tasks of the capitalist democratic revolution, the bourgeois democratic revolution, that could be summed up really in the issue of the unification of the country into a nation state, the solutions to the land question, development of industry, establishment of a stable form of parliamentary democracy. The capitalist class is not sufficiently confident or strong enough to carry out, or complete to be more accurate, the full tasks of the bourgeois democratic revolution. And therefore, the key question is, how is that to develop? And this is where you had the split develop between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, because the Mensheviks concluded that really you'd have to go through a stage theory position, where, first of all, capitalism will have to develop in these countries, if you like, to achieve the bourgeois democratic revolution, before the issue of the socialist revolution would be posed. Now, the problem is... That development is not possible in these countries because they can't break free from the domination of imperialism. And neither are they prepared to rest on the working class that exists in those countries in order to assist them carry through these tasks because they're terrified of of what would be posed by the revolutionary movement of the working class. So they're left in an impossible position. And the essence of the theory that Trotsky developed, because you have also as part of this process a crucial element, as he identified, of the laws of combined and uneven development where you have contradictory positions, you see this very clearly reflected in some of the modern neo-colonial countries of a section of a quite developed form of capitalism existing side by side with incredible backwardness and feudalism. Mm-hmm. You see, for example, in Brazil and India, you see existence. Well, India has its own nuclear warheads. Mm-hmm. Brazil has a highly developed computer industry and sections of industry. But on the other side, you know, you have grinding poverty, misery and conditions akin to what existed in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. as well. So it's like a combined and uneven development. So Trotsky developed the point, well, in that situation, the key tasks is for the working class to step in to lead this process in a revolutionary movement. Even if it's in a minority? Even if it's in a minority, winning the support of the exploited, poorer sections of the peasantry, other sections of the urban poor, sections of the middle class as well. But it will be the working class that has to lead this process. And having come to power, if you like, to try and carry through the tasks of the bourgeois democratic revolution, it won't be limited to that. That will inevitably spill over to the question of abolishing capitalism, introducing a state plan of production in the initial period of the revolution itself. And that will be necessary in order to develop society. But the key point with that is that, as Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks emphasise, it assumes a permanence of its character. In a sense, it's an ongoing process. But the key factor there is having taken power in one country then it is not possible to move towards the development of socialism simply within the limitations of that country. And you have to look towards the extension of the revolution internationally, particularly towards the more industrialized and developed countries. And the whole emphasis of Lenin, Trotsky and the Bolsheviks was having taken power in Russia. They saw that as a first step. It was the breaking of capitalism at its weakest link at that point. They then saw the importance of extending the revolution, I particularly look towards the development of the German Revolution. And in fact, Lenin, at one point, even posed the question that if they had to give up the Russian Revolution, if it meant the victory of the revolution in Germany, they would do it because that was more important from the point of view of the world revolution and the defeat of capitalism. But that understanding and what Trotsky clarified in the theory of the permanent revolution, which he did in conjunction with another individual at the time, who was a Marxist at the time, he abandoned the revolution movement later. Parvus, they developed these ideas. Lenin, in the course of the process, accepted the full analysis that Trotsky put forward On this particular question, it was absolutely instrumental for securing the victory of the Russian Revolution, and it was the real struggle that took place between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks was, in a sense, around this issue, because the Mensheviks were arguing initially support for the provisional government, support for a capitalist coalition as a first step, and never pose the issue of the working class itself taking power.
1: And while Trotsky was in exile in 1914, the Great War broke out, and... This was a crucial point for revolutionary socialists around the world. that led to a shattering of the Second International. And Lenin and Trotsky ended up in a very small minority in Marxism and in socialism. Isn't that right?
2: That's absolutely true. And there's many important lessons for that, because what took place with the outbreak of the First World War was the collapse of all of the mass workers' parties, or the leaders, the leadership to be more accurate, who capitulated to national chauvinism, the German SPD, when they voted for war credits, you saw that reflected in the Labour Party here in the UK. And in similar stance in relation to France, you saw you know, all of the mass workers' organisations at that time, which existed, capitulated and collapsed. And those who stood out against that pressure were a small minority. And by the way, that has lessons to what we faced in the pandemic today and the Covid crisis. At the outbreak of that, we saw a whole series, if not the majority, of the political leaders, of the so-called left parties in the parliaments endorsed what the governments had done, the trade unions suspending strike action and struggle. In many ways, it was similar to what happened in 1914. And in 1914, those who represented opposition to the war were a tiny minority. And a conference eventually did take place at Zimmerwald. And even at that, you know, you had a small minority with Lenin, with Trotsky, with Luxembourg from Germany, and others, but even the participants at the conference, the Zimmerzold conference, you had two wings. You had the Revolutionary Wing around Lenin, and you had a pacifist wing as well. They managed to put together an agreement, a declaration, a joint declaration, which Trotsky largely penned to get it out, but it, was not on a, it wasn't an agreement in terms of what the programme and strategy should be in terms of fighting the war. But, of course, that was 1914. Events rapidly changed, and by 1917, you'd had the victory of the Russian Revolution.
1: Having established these ideas, these extremely important ideas, during his period in exile, I mean, the exile then stretched on for some time. Lots of things happened to Trotsky in this period. He was a war correspondent for a time, which for any other person might be their entire biography, (laughs) but is a footnote, really, in the life of Leon Trotsky. But the next major development in world history, which Trotsky was involved in, was in 1917. Revolution broke out a second time in Russia, in February. Trotsky tried to return... When this broke out, what was his role this time? Well, he, re- he returned to Russia. Lenin had arrived in April. And you can see once
2: again how nothing is predetermined because the position of the Bolsheviks of Stalin was not clear after the initial outbreak of the revolution in February. It took Lenin's return in April... And the production of his marvellous little tract, The April Thesis, where he clarified the question of the class character of the revolution, no support to the provisional government, and of a struggle really for the working class in Russia to take the revolution further and ultimately to take power. Trotsky returned to Russia having been imprisoned in a concentration camp in Canada by the British on his way back there, but nevertheless managed to make it back to Russia and immediately threw himself into revolutionary activity. He still wasn't with the Bolshevik Party at this particular stage. And, of course, we had two revolutions in Russia in 1917, one in February. The later one where the workers took power was in October. And there was a whole process of ebbs and flows in the revolutionary movement during the course of that particular process. And in July, you saw... The coming out onto the streets of the working class in Petrograd, there was a discussion about that. You saw the month of the Great Slander, as July was dubbed, as was a vicious campaign conducted against the Bolsheviks. Lenin was denounced as a German agent. We saw a whole campaign taking place, and we saw it was during that period of July, actually, that Trotsky finally went in to the Bolshevik party, joined the Bolshevik party and was immediately elected onto the Central Committee, which is an illustration of the authority that he had in the party at that time. And he played an absolutely indispensable role. He was then made a member of what was called the Military Revolutionary Committee, which in essence was the body which organised the insurrection itself in October. And from that point of view, along obviously with Lenin and other leaders, but particularly Lenin and Trotsky played a decisive role in estimating the tactics, assessing the consciousness, and the mood of the working class at each stage of events, particularly from July up to October, and eventually was successful in carrying through the insurrection in October, which resulted in the formation of the workers' government, which was the first time ever in history of humankind, that the working class had taken power and formed their own government at that stage. And in that sense, that achievement was really the greatest achievement in the history of humankind, in the history of the workers' movement, most certainly, because it resulted in the overthrow of landlordism and capitalism, and it became a beacon
1: for the working class of the world. And this insurrection in October, this was no mere palace coup. This was a transfer of power from the discredited capitalist provisional government to the workers, soldiers and peasants councils, the Soviets, which, as we have discussed earlier, were genuine organs of democratic struggle for the workers and actually wider sections of the masses increasingly throughout the Russian Revolution. And shortly after, the working class took power The young workers' state in Russia was forced into difficult negotiations over peace with German imperialism because, of course, the Russian Revolution brought about the end of the First World War. Trotsky led those talks in Brest-Litovsk, which is in what is now in Belarus. But the peace agreement was subject of major controversy over revolutionary strategy. Why was that? Well, it's interesting, and I think we should emphasise
2: here, of course, you mentioned there, James, the question of the war. And that was a fundamental issue vis-à-vis the Russian Revolution itself, Mm. because, you know, you had the exhaustion, the slaughter of millions, the demand for an ending to the war, you know, it was enormous amongst the masses. who suffered horrific carnage in the trenches of all of the armies involved. And the Mensheviks, you know, failed to end the war. Mm. <laughs> and that, that it was a crucial factor in the majority, the army, the majority of the working class, switching over to the Bolsheviks. That was a crucial issue. Now, having taken power and formed the workers' government, of course, they then had to deal with the specifics of running <laughs> a workers' government and suing for peace. And it opened up a polemic in terms of the negotiations that took place, as you say, at brest toss in 1917, 1918. Part of the peace agreement was arrived at. Now, this is against the background where the Bolsheviks, Lenin and Trotsky in particular, they'd taken power, you know, it was a fragile basis, as all revolutions initially are. But one of their main concerns was what's going to happen with the German Revolution, mm. what is going to happen? And that was a factor. They were in a weak position militarily, the soldiers had enough of the war and, you know, were deserting the trenches, would not carrying on fighting, were demanding peace. And the question was that they were considering one of the key elements in it was estimating what had been the effect of the war on the German army and on the German working class. And, of course, that was a bit of an unknown quantity mm. in terms of estimating what state the German army was really in. As, now, as regards, would it... Carry out a revolution. Will it have a mutiny against itself. And this is the key point of the German ruling class, of course, wanting to snuff out the worker state in Russia. <laughs> they wanted to put the Bolsheviks out and still wanted to get what they could from a military point of view. So the Germans, when they started the negotiations, imposed bad terms, offered you know, not very conducive terms for the Soviet government. Now, the question was how to accept that. And this is where Lenin put the position. Well, if we knew there would be an immediate German revolution, we could do anything necessary to assist that, and we could risk even losing Russia on the basis of a German military offensive if it meant there would be a successful revolution in Germany. But that was not guaranteed, and therefore it's a question of working towards that end of a German revolution but trying to secure the position in Russia. Now, three schools of thought fundamentally opened up within the leadership. Trotsky's position was to sue for peace, not sign the conditions that German imperialism had imposed, and see if the Germans continued with a military advance. If they did undertake a military advance, because of the state of the Russian army was extremely weak at that particular stage, then he said at that point we should capitulate, if you like, and accept the conditions as being forced upon us. And on the basis of it clearly seen and understood that it was because of a military advance from Germany that they had no choice but to accept these bad conditions. Mm. Lenin put a somewhat different position really that they should not risk a German military advance and should sue to accept the peace agreements as rapidly as possible. But it was a third position that was put and this was the critical question that the Soviet government should turn the issue of the war not in the war, but turn into a revolutionary war and advance on that basis. And both Lenin and Trotsky had the position that that was not viable because they didn't have a Red Army at that stage, which just wasn't there. And it would have been a suicide mission mm. to do that. And Lenin, his main preoccupation was defeating that position. Now, it's extremely important to emphasize here, within the Bolshevik Party, that particular position had a lot of support, a lot of support and in fact was, you know, in some respects even a partial majority position within the party. It reflected in some of the debates that took in place and Lenin had to wage a merciless struggle against that position in the debates. In fact, I can't remember the exact figures. There was one meeting that took place in Petrograd where the supporters of the Revolutionary War got about 35%, 30, 35, 32 votes. Yeah. The supporters of Lenin's position got 15 mm-hmm. votes, and the supporters of Trotsky's position got 16 mm-hmm. votes. So you can see it, and by the way, that also... Punctus of myth <laughs> that there was no debate to place in the Bolshevik Party at this <laughs> particular stage. This, or that, Lenin always got his way. Or that Lenin always got his way. Lenin's position was the smallest position at that particular meeting. I mean, so it was an issue of a struggle. Now, eventually, Trotsky's position won out and was temporarily accepted by the Central Committee by the Party Congress after intense debate. And they tried that position. But very rapidly after being duped by the Germans, the Germans we tried to drag out the peace negotiations a bit longer, and eventually the Germans broke it and went for a bit of a military advance, and at which point Lenin's position was immediately accepted mm. there. But it shows the whole issue of, you know, very complex questions that were confronting this extremely fragile Soviet government which was in power and had only just taken power. And it's a question of maintaining the integrity of that regime in its very early stages, as a central point to act as an appeal for the working class internationally, particularly in Germany
1: and other countries of Europe. So when German imperialism broke this off, this fired the starting gun on a war of intervention by armies from all the major capitalist powers in Europe, sending forces into Russia alongside representatives, reactionaries of the old ruling classes, the whites... In an attempt to drown that revolution in blood, and Trotsky then led the construction and command of the Red Army to defend against this counter-revolutionary invasion and conduct a civil war to defend the workers' state. That's true,
2: and that was, in a certain sense, one of his most incredible achievements. Because Trotsky, you know, despite having a tremendous theoretical capacity, he'd never been involved in military affairs before. You know, he'd had no military training or particularly been involved in it. But from that position. And it's a reflection of his incredible genius that he was able to absorb all of the fundamental tasks necessary. He built a Red Army from fundamentally nothing, as we've seen happen, by the way, in other revolutions. I mean, if you take the English Civil War, I mean, Cromwell constructed a new model army on a bourgeois basis. But incredible feats were undertaken by the Roundheads and by Cromwell's army, how it was built up for nothing in a certain sense on a much higher level completely ideological basis, much superior, class composition, somewhat different as well. Trotsky did the same on a much bigger scale, a much, much bigger scale in terms of a force that was built. And it was incredible, but it wasn't an automatic process. It had to be a struggle for. There was a, a battle to achieve the building of the army itself. And then, of course, he was faced with all of the issues of fighting a civil war, as you say, against 21 armies Of intervention which came in to try and crush the movement and he built an incredible position and the revolution at different stages was extremely precarious at one point they were down to only having control of the areas around Petrograd and Moscow but from that they fought back a lot and a crucial aspect of that was the role that Trotsky played as the commander-in-chief of the army but also he pioneered incredible inventiveness in terms of military tactics in terms of what he did. I mean, if you read his my life, he had a train where he travelled from front to front, and it wasn't just a train. It had printing presses, it had a whole series of other facilities, obviously some military defence units on it. He had his own squads, On it, of highly motivated young worker Bolsheviks who were committed, who would go into the trenches with the Red Army soldiers, fight alongside with them, raise their spirits and their determination that they were slacking and falling back or their morale had dipped after suffering war, and it was a phenomenal feat. And, by the way, the feat of this in Trotsky's military writings and his studies is even acknowledged today by bourgeois military strategists. In many of the bourgeois military academies, One of the works that he studied is Trotsky's military writings and how he conducted the fight in the civil war itself. I was amazed to find out that in the Pakistani army, for example, all of Trotsky's military writings are taught as part of the training process for the officer corps there because of the significance of it as a recognition, really, of what was achieved. Now, of course, you won't find that broadcast on any of the capitalist media outlets, (laughs) but it's a fact,
1: and it's a measure of what was achieved there. In 1924... Vladimir Lenin died after a period of illness. Lenin and Trotsky had been the key leaders of the revolution. But Trotsky ended up losing power to Stalin, who previously was a little-known figure, with his theory of socialism in one country counterposed to Trotsky's theory of the permanent revolution. What happened? Well, there was a process. Of course, it didn't take
2: place overnight, but you had a whole series of factors coming together. You had a very difficult international situation. The revolution in Russia had been isolated. You saw by 1924, death of Lenin. You'd had a defeat of the German revolution. The defeat of the Chinese revolution came quite quickly after that. And a very difficult situation with the Russian revolution remaining isolated. And on top of that, you'd had two other important factors. One, you had exhaustion after the civil war had taken place. I mean, it was not just a civil war. It was preceded by the First World War as well. Mm. So you go straight for the First World War, straight into a civil war, motivated and it was sustained because of support for the revolution, but nevertheless a devastating suffering and effects for the mass of the population, during which you'd lost, by the way, a whole series of key Bolsheviks were killed during the course of the war itself. And then, of course, you had other complicated factors. You saw the beginnings Because of the shortages, the horrific economic situation developing, the bureaucracy began to crystallise. The Soviets became a little more drained, less participation by sections of workers within them. The party apparatus became strengthened. And you'd had, coming into the party as well, sections of the state machine previously from the Tsar, under the Tsarist state, had come into the party apparatus, were absorbed into the state apparatus and then into the party apparatus. Sections who had opposed the revolution before had also, for their own opportunist reasons, come in. And you saw the beginnings of the development of a bureaucracy, a bureaucratic caste began to emerge. began had begun to develop before 1924. I mean, Lenin in 23 was raising, before he had the stroke, was raising the dangers of what was taking place here. It came out for the replacement in private conversations with Trotsky that they agreed to form a bloc, that Stalin should be removed as the general secretary because he could see the dangers that were then posed. But nevertheless, this bureaucracy began to develop and then... Trotsky, bit by bit, became the victim of an incredible campaign, which probably started in 22, 23, launched by people around Stalin to discredit Trotsky. There was a whole series of the groundwork was being prepared. It wasn't just one immediate act. This was done over a period of time. Breastless Tosk, which we discussed, a false position was put there in terms of distorting, trying to put the position that only Trotsky was against you know, signing a peace agreement, mm-hmm. where it's a much more complicated process, as we've already explained. There was a whole series of gossip and rumour put round about Trotsky underestimating the peasantry, ignoring the peasantry. And bit by bit, there was a marginalisation began to take place. And then the party became more of an apparatus, or big chunks of it, and it began to be used to howl down those who supported Trotsky at meetings, of intimidation and crystallised around him taking power and eventually arrived right the position of Trotsky being more and more marginalised within the official positions, eventually being forced to resign from some of his positions and they drove him into internal exile and then expelled him from the Soviet Union. And, of course, as a justification of that, we saw this idea put forward, this pernicious reactionary idea of socialism in one country. It wasn't just Lenin and Trotsky or the theory of the permanent revolution that had never been entertained in the history of the Bolshevik Party as part of its programme. The Mm. idea was always from the point of view of an international socialist revolution. That is suddenly gone. And that really was the theoretical justification for this new
1: Bonapartist bureaucratic clique which began to emerge. You've used the word Bonapartist there and you (coughs) used it earlier in the podcast as well. Could you give us maybe a short definition of that for listeners?
2: Yes, I mean, by Bonapartist what we mean by that is a state regime or a power or force or individual that's ahead of it who would carry out repressive measures, but also balance between different classes and interests, etc. But in this particular case, it was a Bonapartist regime which was balancing on different interests, including this new bureaucratic caste which was emerging, and also eventually moved towards carrying
1: out even more repressive measures. And, of course, for Napoleon Bonaparte, who rose to carry out that sort of regime after the French Revolution. Absolutely. Now... You mentioned that it was not automatic that Trotsky and the ideas which he and the old Bolsheviks had represented lost power to stalin. There was all this complicated... It was the international situation, the failure of the other revolutions. It was the crippling of the economy, which fundamentally was a result of the mismanagement of Tsarism, followed by two extremely depleting wars. All of this together allowed the bureaucracy to crystallise. But of course, there was opposition to that, wasn't there? And Trotsky led a group which became known as the Left Opposition and fought within the Soviet Union and within the Communist Party and the Communist International against the dictatorship of the bureaucracy for genuine workers' democracy. And even after his expulsion, that wasn't the end of the story. Ultimately, the Left Opposition ended up leaving the Communist International and setting up on its own in 1939 as a separate international. Why was that?
2: Again, it was a process. I mean, Trotsky didn't have a a predetermined agenda here because... When you saw the crystallisation of the bureaucracy, his initial position was to struggle against it and to struggle to reform it and to struggle to reform the Communist Party, including the Communist International, which, by the way, under the you know, guise of defending this idea of socialism in one country, in practice that meant that the Communist Parties in the other countries saw their role changed from being the standard bearers to fight for the world revolution, Mm. that their decisive role became to act as the border guards of the Stalinized Soviet Union. And it was defense of the Soviet Union was their main objective. And therefore, it was used by Stalin that they could do nothing in their own countries, which would jeopardize the interests of Stalin. And for Stalin, that meant you don't fight for the socialist revolution Mm. in those countries, which had disastrous consequences in China and Spain, and eventually, well, from somewhat different reason in Germany, as well. But the original position of Trotsky was to go for reform, but that position changed, and the decisive factor that changed Trotsky's attitude for it was what happened within Germany with the coming to power of Hitler, Mm. and that was a decisive turning point in his assessment, because it did not provoke... It provoked discussion, but it did not provoke mass opposition and revolt within the Comintern and within the different communist parties. Trotsky still maintained a position to try and influence and win the rank-on-file communists, but he came to the conclusion that then we now have to go for a position, not just a reform, eventually he developed it in relation to the Soviet Union, in his marvellous book, Revolution Portrayed, where he develops the position that you had to go now... For another revolution, not a social revolution because you had a nationalised planned economy, capitalism did not exist, but a political revolution of the working class to take power back from this bureaucratic clique and concluded that it was necessary, as you say, in 1939 to launch the fourth international as an attempt to reassemble the forces of genuine Bolshevism around the idea of building a new international because of the complete degeneration and collapse politically which has taken place of the Comintern and the different communist parties. Now that heroic struggle was raised and this is one of the problems that the capitalist commentators who denigrate Trotsky have because who were the first people to go into the gulags under Stalin? It was the Trotskys They were the ones that spoke out while others remained quiet Others sat on their hands. It was Trotsky and his supporters that spoke out against what was happening under the Stalinist regime. And they paid a terrible price. You had in Volkuta, you know, hundreds of young workers, Bolsheviks, Trotsky's sent to the camps to face execution, being wiped out. But he had thousands of supporters throughout the Soviet Union who were there. But nevertheless, they were not able to resist the growing consolidation of this Stalinist bureaucracy into power because of the conditions in the soviet union itself but also because of the defeats which had taken place internationally and trotsky then eventually driven to exile in mexico then began some of his most important work to try and assemble the forces of the fourth international but to defend ideologically and leave behind a genuine legacy of what is revolutionary socialism and one of the most important contributions he made there, was a theoretical analysis explained his marvellous book, Revolution Betrayed, because this development of Stalin's bureaucracy was an entirely new historical phenomenon. that mm. had not existed before. And it's that clarifying exactly what had taken place, which was crucial for the whole of the next historical period which opened up during and after the Second World War. And, of course, you see, by the time you get to the Second World War, <laughs> what had, had taken place. I mean, Stalin, they attacked Trotsky on the question of Brest-Litovsk and what his alleged role was there, and yet yeah, what was it Stalin did? <laughs> <laughs> uh, immediately, you know, uh, contrast what Lenin and Trotsky had argued at brest to what Stalin did was signing the Stalin-Hitler Pact mm. in 1939. One week after the signing of the Stalin-Hitler Pact, of course, Hitler invaded Poland, and that was that, and two years later, he invaded the Soviet Union as mm. well. So, I mean, we can see where his method, Stalin's method, led to. But that was a fundamental issue then for Trotsky to proclaim the Fourth International. He hoped for a more rapid development of those forces. They started with relatively few forces internationally. But, of course, you had the development of the Second World War, which partly cut across that, revolutionary situations at the end of the war. But then, of course, capitalism managed to go into a whole period of historical upswing and went into a new historical era. But all of that work, all of those points, now with this new global crisis, this era of global catastrophe of capitalism, makes the relevance of these ideas, the relevance of what Trotsky did then, even more important and pertinent to today's
1: situation. So the hitler stalin Pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, the effect of that was the crushing of revolutionary forces, whereas the Brest-Litovsk, peace was something foisted on the workers' state in an attempt to buy time to develop the revolution. So, on the surface, they may appear, and Stalin certainly made them appear to be equivalent, but in fact, they had opposite intentions. Yeah, I mean, of course, the German workers' movement, in that sense, had been atomized
2: and crushed before the signing of the Stalin-Hitler pact, because, you know, when Hitler came to power so 33, I mean, most of that had been done. But, I mean, internationally, he formed this block with an out-and-out fascist regime whose whole objective was the destruction of the workers' organisations in
1: any country they marched into. (laughs) And in the founding conference of the Fourth International, Leon Trotsky was involved in producing a document called these days the Transitional Programme, wasn't he? And that's a very important document for Trotskyism and for the CWI in particular. Most definitely, James. It's a crucial
2: document because in that, Trotsky outlines a number of points. Firstly, it takes up specific demands to be fought for by the working class and a whole series of questions in relation to unemployment, sharing out the work, reduction of the working week, the question of a minimum wage. It deals with the whole question of, under certain conditions, the need for workers' committees to be formed in order to defend workers from attack by the right and the fascist organisations. It's a whole programme, but in addition to that, it raises important questions, because what it illustrates is the method of Trotsky and Trotskyism and indeed of Bolshevism, which the CWI bases itself upon. And that is that we don't just develop our ideas in the abstract. We have a clear objective of what we want to fight for for socialism but we have to relate that to the day-to-day experiences and the day-to-day consciousness, political consciousness of the working class, of the youth and all oppressed in society and we had to take up demands and fight for every day-to-day reform even that the working class wants but the key thing that Trotsky outlined in that program was that while revolutionaries will fight for all reforms fight for every improvement in the conditions of the working class we do that in such a way as to link it from today's aspirations and consciousness of working people and try and provide a bridge through those struggles, through those demands, a bridge to the idea of the need for a socialist society and then a programme and a set of demands of how a socialist society would be built and that is a fundamental issue which is of crucial importance for the CWI and all of our sections intervening in the big explosive movements which are developing around the world at the present time.
1: So it's that method, the transitional method, which is important to us.
2: It is. That's absolutely fundamental, the transitional method. And, I mean, often Trotskyists are maligned and said that on the one side we don't support reforms, on the other side they say that we're just putting forward abstract demands that bear no correlation to the reality. We put forward demands that we know are impossible to reach. Well, on both accounts, that's false. We would defend and fight for every reform that benefits the interest of working people. But using Trotsky's method, we always explain that any reform conquered by the struggles of the working people could only be safeguarded and guaranteed if it's also linked with the need to transform society because what capitalism gives with the left hand, they will come back when they are able to and take it away from the right hand. And our demands are not abstract, utopian demands. They say we consciously put forward demands that capitalism can't meet. Well, we put forward demands and fight for demands that improve the conditions of life, the quality of life for all working people and demands on the programme that working people require to improve their quality of life, their quality of existence, to utilise the productive forces for the benefit of the whole of society. And in fighting for those, if capitalism cannot afford it or is not prepared to concede those demands, then of course, again, it poses a need to link a struggle for that programme, for those demands, with the need to break the capitalism and establish a democratic socialist plan of production and build a new world.
1: So, Trotsky was the de facto leader of the 1905 revolution. He was central to expounding the theory of the permanent revolution, which, as you say, was later accepted by mm. Lenin in the April Theses in 1917. Trotsky then co-led the October Revolution in 1917 alongside Lenin, negotiated the peace at Brest-Litovsk, founded and commanded the Red Army to defend the workers' state, fought the bureaucratization of the workers' state under Stalin with his left opposition, and when that no longer became viable, established an entirely new international socialist organisation to try to keep the flame of genuine Marxism, workers' democracy and international revolution alive... But even this was not Trotsky's last battle and final contribution. In the run-up to his death in 1940, there was a struggle even within the New International, the Fourth International, in particular in its US section, the Socialist Workers' Party. Having fought to defend Marxism against Stalinist degeneration, a new rightward drift developed in the US SWP. What happened there? Are there lessons from that for today as well? There are, I mean, because it's important to recognise,
2: I mean, outside of the left opposition in Russia itself, which had a big support, or thousands of supporters, the SWP in America was probably the largest group that Trotsky had grouped around him internationally. The other forces were relatively small, and the role of the SWP at that stage had been absolutely critical. I've been on two or three occasions to visit Trotsky's house in Mexico City, and, you know, it's very impressive to see but one of the things is, is the equipment he had at the time. I mean, it was some of the most modern equipment that existed at the time for his secretaries to aid his writings. And that, he got that from the SWP in America. I mean, the man was penniless. Apart from that, they played a crucial role in assisting the work at that stage. And then this battle broke out. And it was another important struggle. You know, Trotsky initially tried to mediate to prevent it developing into a major struggle, but that became untenable. As he saw an assault on the basic ideas of Marxism, theoretical ideas of Marxism, and also around the question of an understanding of the class character of the Soviet Union itself was an important element in the battle that eventually unfolded. And then it was crucial because it was the issue of orientation as well, of how the party should orientate to the American working class his class composition, how it intervened amongst the American working class, how it intervened in the trade unions. A whole series of crucial questions arose and it eventually led to a split. What happened later after the death of Trotsky to the SWP in America is a different discussion. Mm. You know, it went off in another direction later. But nevertheless, that was a crucial battle. And it had very important lessons. It had lessons for us in the CWI in terms of the period we have been through. Where we had a layer broke away from us who wanted to abandon the idea of systematic trade union work, systematic, consistent work within the organisations of the working class and to build fundamentally a proletarian organisation. So it has had certain relevance to today's situation. And from that, important lessons can undoubtedly be drawn as to how the forces of the CWI and other revolutionary organisations need to develop over the course of the next period.
1: Now, as always, if you like what you've heard donate to help fund us, recommend us to your friends and co-workers and if you agree, join the socialists. All of these very rich points which we've been just introducing today we're going to develop further in podcasts on specific topics, specific areas of Trotsky's life and ideas throughout the month of August but you can read all of these and more in a new book which is going to be published by the Committee for a Workers International. What's it called Tony? We don't know yet. We, we don't know, know yet. We haven't got a title yet. On the revolutionary life and ideas of Leon Trotsky, title to be announced. But for this month of August, the 80th anniversary of the assassination of Leon Trotsky, we're going to be examining why he was assassinated and the power of his ideas which led to that assassination, their relevance for today. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Tony Sanwar speaking to James Ivans, and I'm Helen Patterson. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The CWI is holding an international online rally for the 80th anniversary of Trotsky's assassination, entitled Why Couldn't His Ideas Be Killed? It's on Sunday, 23rd of August from 2pm London time. You can register to attend at socialistworld.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.